name is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Diversity, inclusion, and equity remain lofty goals for organizations. But if they remain as aspirational rhetoric, they are of little use or value. They only matter if they are operationalized. But operationalizing diversity, inclusion, and equity is difficult because it requires facilitating access, a willingness to take action, and holding people accountable. Discrimination exists in all organizations, and it's not a secret who are the most egregious perpetrators. In fact, many are open about their views. Real change only happens when you can hold those individuals to account. Today's podcast is about bringing about this real change. When I think back to the last four years of the Trump administration, I'm struck by how many institutions, including the mainstream media, struggled to identify Mr. Trump as a racist. When these institutions and their leaders were challenged by activist voices, asking them for an explanation, three justifications prevailed. One, we can't call Trump a racist because we don't know what's in his heart. Two, although his words are discriminatory and designed to inflame people's emotions, that alone doesn't make him a racist. And finally, three, Mr. Trump is not a polished politician. He's your everyday guy that doesn't necessarily subscribe to the more liberal idea of political correctness. He's not a racist. He's just not politically correct. As Mr. Trump's presidency journeyed along its four years, the evidence was unequivocal. Whether one reads his comments about Nelson Mandela or listens to his famous speech in Trump Tower, where he announces his bid for the presidency of the United States and says, When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Hmm. And some, I assume, are good people. When Mr. Trump calls African countries shithole countries, or says in a campaign speech in New Hampshire, that he pledges to kick out all Syrian refugees, most of whom are Muslim, because they might be part of a secret army. And I quote, They could be ISIS. I don't know. This could be one of the greatest tactical ploys of all time. A 200,000-man army, maybe. This could make the Trojan horse look like peanuts. He doubles down against Muslims three weeks later, 
on Fox when he says he could certainly look at the idea of closing all mosques in the U.S. Mr. Trump is clearly a racist in the words he uses, in the ideas he promotes, in the timings of his comments, and in the way he so deftly uses discrimination to create fear of the other. I'm not concerned that I don't know what is in his heart, because I know that what is coming out of his mouth is coming from his brain. And the brain is the epicenter of love, hate, and racism. Now, this is not a political podcast, so it doesn't matter to me whether my listeners support Trump or rejoice in his replacement. That is not the point of the comments I just shared. What the Trump presidency showed us is that racism and discrimination exist. They are alive and well, and institutions don't know how to call them out or deal with them in any real way. In fact, in my experience, the bar to call out racism at every institution I have worked at in the last 30 years is so high that I've never seen a leader point out or hold accountable racist behavior in a way that clearly draws out the values of the organization to everyone who works there. And I don't believe that this is because leaders don't care about discrimination in their organizations. I believe it's because they lack the tools to manage those with power. You see, in organizations, the primary perpetrators of repeated discriminatory behavior are individuals that have power. When a new person joins an organization, no matter their level of employment, their biases, proclivities, values, and behaviors are not out on display during the interview process. No, you learn about someone over time as they show themselves in the workplace. Think about a senior manager whose consideration and care surprised you. You may have always known them to have a reputation for kindness, but you didn't realize the depth of that kindness or empathy until you experienced it yourself. That doesn't happen on day one. That happens over time. In organizations, being comfortable often means knowing that you work in a situation where you can exert power and agency without fear or judgment. A senior manager may struggle to be overly caring for fear of being taken advantage of, but once they feel they have enough power and influence, they can feel more comfortable to be themselves. That same level of comfort also applies to individuals who have a proclivity towards discrimination. The story I want to share with you today takes place at a well-reputed university in the United States. The faculty member taught in a business school program that catered primarily to executive learners. The institution had satellite campuses across the city where faculty members traveled to deliver their courses. This faculty member, let's call him Danish, was an award-winning professor 
he would arrive in the early afternoon to the Oxbard campus to get ready for class. Each satellite campus has a small library, an IT specialist, and a receptionist slash assistant whose job it was to greet students and support faculty. At Oxbard, the receptionist, let's call her Rachel, was a very kind and warm person. Although she got along great with students, her willingness to support faculty was limited. She regularly forgot assignments and many times had reasons why she couldn't support pretty reasonable requests from faculty. This lack of support was unique to the Oxbard campus and was allowed to persist because Rachel was the daughter of a powerful, long-standing faculty member. Let's call him Bob. Donish and most of his colleagues who came to teach at the Oxbard campus had become used to not making support requests of Rachel. However, Donish was about to teach a class session that had a number of experiential exercises planned, and he really needed Rachel's support. Donish arrived especially early to campus that morning and asked Rachel for some help getting ready for class, photocopies and such. Rachel agreed, but when the time for class came, She'd not completed any of the things Danish asked her to do and gave him no heads up. Danish was disappointed and upset because her lack of support was affecting the classroom experience. After the students completed class, Danish asked Rachel why she agreed to support him if she was not going to complete the task at hand. She ignored Danish and refused to engage in the conversation. On his drive home, remember Bob? Rachel's father? Well, he calls Donish. Bob is livid. And he says to Donish, Hi, Danish. I understand you put Rachel on the spot today. Look, she's my daughter. She doesn't have to support you if she doesn't want to. You're new here, and let's face it, you're not here to stay. You don't fit in. You better think twice about whether you want to create an enemy in me. I can make your life miserable here. Bob didn't even let Donish speak. He simply ended with, You better watch out. And hung up. Donish was angry, frustrated, and concerned by the consequences Bob was suggesting. After all, he was on tenure track, and he needed the support of his fellow faculty to become a tenured professor. Donish sat on this call for 24 hours. He thought about it up and down and realized he wasn't so bothered by Bob's tone, but he couldn't get past Bob's words. Let's face it, you're not here to stay. You don't fit in. That wasn't okay with Donish. Not fitting in. Those three words allowed discrimination to go unchecked in so many organizations. Danish spoke to his two associate deans and the dean, asking them for their perspective and their support. Two of the three were sympathetic. They listened. They even suggested that Bob is a bit of a loose cannon and assured Danish it would likely blow over. After all, Bob was probably just upset that you confronted his daughter. In their attempt to get past the situation, the dean or the associate dean never spoke directly to Bob's comment. 
about Danish not fitting in. Why? Three reasons. One, the third associate dean very much believed that the school had a number of individuals, mainly women, faculty who were members of the LGBTQ plus community, and people of color that didn't fit in. Two, there was no one on the management team who had authentic agency around issues of diversity. The leadership at the institution was lacking on so many fronts when it came to diversity. This is not uncommon. Look at the number of top Canadian business schools who are so proud that almost 40% of their students are born outside Canada, but have never had a person of color on their management teams. The third reason that the deans didn't speak about Bob's comments about Danish fitting in? Well, Bob had power. See, Bob had been at the institution longer than all three of these administrators, and he was not afraid to voice his opinions to them or to the president of the university. He had power, and they had no clue how to manage that power. And diversity? Well, it was simply not important enough an issue to take Bob on. If you're surprised, don't be. This isn't surprising. About 30 days ago, 74 million Americans, most of whom don't like how Mr. Trump uses discrimination, most of whom are not at all racist, still voted for him. Mr. Trump's racism just wasn't important enough an issue. How can this real-life example help leaders become better at managing the bobs of the world? Hauling Bob into the principal's office for a conversation may appease Danish in the short term, but it's not actually going to fix anything. And frankly, it will likely inflame Bob's biases, creating the potential for even more egregious behavior. Helping Bob become a less biased person is a lofty goal. And if Bob has the introspective ability to go on that journey, then great. But even this is largely unrealistic. If the management team is committed to holding Bob accountable, to holding up the principles of pluralism and diversity, then what it needs to do is send a very clear message to Bob that this behavior is not without consequence and that the consequence will be him losing power. That realization won't make Bob less racist, but it may make him change his behavior, and that will protect the more easily marginalized employees of the school. Losing power and influence in any organization is scary. If the management team does not make this possibility clear to Bob, his behavior will become more egregious, and others may feel emboldened. So how do you manage power brokers like Bob? Well, before I offer an answer to that question, many of you will rightfully be asking yourselves, is this Bob's first infraction? It's not. Bob has a reputation of treating women and persons of color poorly. This is also not the first time Bob has attempted to marginalize Danish. When Danish tells his story, it's not a surprise to the leadership team. It just makes them anxious. So how do you deal with Bob? Step one, because Bob is a repeat offender, 
the team must immediately begin to limit Bob's access to senior managers and the level of affiliation he experiences from them. What does this mean? You don't take optional meeting requests from Bob, and you stop being friendly with him. You even withhold niceties. Bob will soon realize something is up. Step two. You make the time to listen to those who have stories to share about Bob's current and previous aggressions. If you've heard them, you ask to hear them again. You make sure you understand what is going on, not conceptually, but in detail. You also ask those individuals what they thought of your action or lack thereof. That will help you put the effects of Bob's actions into perspective. Step three, you must ensure that you and your fellow senior managers agree that you need to deal with this issue beyond simply being empathetic to the Donishes of the world. When you have dissent in the management team, like in the example I provided, where one of the associate deans shared many of the same egregious behaviors as Bob, you need to invoke a different perspective on Bob's behavior. See, most leaders, when faced with discrimination challenges, take a let's-keep-it-in-the-family perspective. And that works until it doesn't. Until someone who has experienced discrimination starts telling people and institutions outside the organization. So management teams cannot think about discrimination like it's a family secret. They have to think about it and manage it as though it is known by key stakeholders outside the organization, the board, the media, competitors. You get the drift. Step four, you need to include Bob. You need to tell Bob what you've learned. You need to demonstrate the repeat offenses and you need to ask him for his perspective. You also need to explain that you will be sharing both his perspective and the perspectives of those complaining with those who have some oversight over the senior management team to get their perspective. Then you need to go ahead and get that perspective. Step five. You need to exert courageous, good judgment. Should Bob have access to opportunities for professional growth in the organization? Should Bob be allowed to mentor new hires? Should Bob receive opportunities that are outward-facing, where he would serve as a representative of the organization? Step six. You have to allow Bob to come back from his behaviors. Bob has to be offered the opportunity to make things right. Bob has to be offered a pathway back to a more positive power position. However, that pathway must involve making previous wrongs right. When a management team shuffles through diversity challenges, when they are driven by the idea of let's just get past this, let's do everything we can to put it in our rearview mirror, they ignore the inevitable consequence. Almost 20% of Canadians have experienced discrimination at work due to their religion, race, gender, and sexual orientation. The numbers are higher in the U.S. Half of those who feel discriminated against develop a lower sense of commitment to their organization. Why? Because the bobs of the world create and leverage fear. But rather than dealing with Bob directly, 
Management teams create committees, anti-racism committees, BIPOC advisors. They put everyone through diversity training, including Bob. Look, these committees should exist. They're important, very important. But so is managing Bob and his power. Without that, how can you fix diversity and how can you let those who have been victimized know that the organization cares, not just in words, but in action? I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com. Thank you.